book authors are imaginative architects inviting readers to embark on journeys of the mind and heart dedicating this segment to venture on such journeys in our journey podcast with your host smita gunturi hello everybody i have coach reed maltby with me today he wrote a book called the spartan mindset the mastering language of excellence thank you for being here and i'm going to leave the floor to you what led you to write this book i i've always been a word nerd and uh, i've always sort of straddled that space between academics and sports so even as an athlete i was studying as much about the science behind sport and performance as i was playing and i i coached and played at the same time so my brain's always been sort of gravitating towards what else other than physical performance affects how we do well in high pressure high stress situations like sports and uh, at the time that the book came to fruition i was working on a lot of uh, work around motivation intrinsic motivation locus of control language patterns um how our la- language impacts uh, people around us and ourselves and i was working on a, a a powerpoint or a presentation and my son looked over my shoulder and it was i had called it the warrior brain and it was about different values and if we change the way we say or do things based on these values that we live by then that loosely because it's not really true from a neuroscientific perspective but we activate certain parts of the brain in a positive way and he's like dad you should write a book and so that's how the book came to be was i was always really geeky i when i coached i would script as much about what i was saying as i did the actual coaching itself so not only was i scripting how they would train and the exercises and what i'd teach but actually i would script the exact words i was used because i always wanted to have very clear instructions for my athletes. So I really think that's where the book came from. So when you say that you script your words and I believe like it's just not with uh being a coach on the field like the physical uh, part of it even being an employee somewhere if you are treating your employees with the word the choice of words you use will be a little different. So how important do you think using the such kind of better wordings for the other people instead of just throwing out whatever you feel i think it's vital for me it's become it's it's the most important piece and a lot of times it's the missing piece in the puzzle the three areas that i've always worked in are language learning and leadership and how those three areas affect people's performance what kind of learning environment are we setting how are they learning are we teaching in the way that they can learn best and you know are we creating an effective environments for them to train leadership what kind of leader are we how are we speaking to them all that and a couple of months ago so the book's all you know already gone to print ready to come out i'm already talking about it and i was in a room full of people and we were everybody was sharing you know what there it was a, it was a seminar a business seminar for kajabi and everybody was sharing what they do and what their strengths are and all of a sudden it dawned on me that all these years i've been trying to explain to people what my passion is what i do and why i do the things i do and i always felt like it was so vague because sports psychology it's psychology in general the the soft skills seem so undefined and abstract to a lot of people that it's really hard to define exactly what you do i'm a mental skills coach i'm a i'm a this i'm a that you know and so i'm sitting in that room and it suddenly dawned on me i'm a word guy like words are the the bottleneck because we could have the most effective training program on the planet but if we don't present it in a way that the other people can learn it we've lost them we may be the best sales person in our entire company and be the sales leader but if we can't communicate properly with our teammates then we've done nothing to help them improve or i could have a brilliant sales mind but not know how to structure my sales calls so that they're effective with my customers and so words are the 
thing that makes us unique on this planet. We are of all of, of, of the beings on this planet. We are the ones that are actually to go that can paint a rich tapestry with our language, but it's also the one piece of the puzzle that tends to be what bottlenecks performance. If you cannot translate what's going on in the brain to what's, to what you need to do in the body, it's usually because language has impacted it negatively. It's not easy to find better words all the situations in all in all the situations all the time that you are you also get angry or like you also have frustrations. How do you actually control your language or like what would be your advice for others to like how to control that whole situation? So we 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 talk about two things with our kids. We used to always talk about choosing to respond versus reacting. And usually in situations when when emotions ran high, reaction is an instinctual a reflex, sort of a knee-jerk move where you, you do it without thinking it through and you do it without processing in the brain. So typically the reaction comes from the base of the brain in the amygdala and, and stem area, so the fear center. And so we react to either fight, to run, or to freeze. And so what we teach our children is that we wanted to get away from the instinctual reactions. We didn't want to use the base of our brain. We wanted to use the logic center, which is the frontal lobe that wraps and covers everything up. We wanted to stay in logic center. So to do that, we always told them you got to take a pause. When situations happen, it's okay to have those emotions. It's okay to feel those emotions. Those emotions don't define you. And what's happening doesn't define you. What will define you is how you respond. So take a moment, choose to be analytical and respond rather than react and use the processing part of your brain. The other thing that um, we talk about a lot is, uh, and that I, I used to work with my athletes a lot on too, is the river of emotions. Emotions are a constant flowing river, just like the thoughts, because thoughts typically generate emotions. So if we've got this constant stream in our brain of feelings happening, a lot of times we choose to either ignore them and suppress them and don't acknowledge them, which means they just get worse. But when we're in a situation where emotions are running high, that stream has now become this full-fledged flooding river. It's a flash flood. It's taking debris with it. It's 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 you know lapping up over the shoreline, and we're standing on the shore watching it go by. Typically, what happens is a person will feel that very strong emotion go by and say, "Oh, I'm angry," and jump in the water with it. Now you're being pulled down river, drowning in this anger, and it's really hard to control yourself and the situation. So we always talked about you can acknowledge that river of emotions that goes by. Don't ignore them. Say. I'm angry. There goes anger. There goes sadness. There goes frustration. There goes annoyance. They're going right by me. Acknowledge they exist. Acknowledge they went through your brain, but don't let them define you in that moment. And don't jump into the river. Stay on the shore and stay in control where you can manage the situation. You can't manage it when you're in it. You can only manage it when you're outside of it, looking at it, acknowledging it, naming it, and then choosing to take a different course of action. Does you say it? somebody is responding that way to me how would how should i feel like i mean as you mentioned like that doesn't define you when you are saying the words yes that doesn't define you but for a person like me who is on the receiving end that is all i'm hearing and if that is like a continuous thing that i'm hearing from different people or like even from the same person how do you suggest or like what do you suggest for me how to take that kind of situation we used to always, and if you follow uh, Positive Discipline with Jane Nelson, she talks about it too. It's like, it's okay to acknowledge how you are being made to feel or how you are feeling in a situation. It's not being made to feel. You're feeling something because somebody's doing something. And so we used to always talk, it's okay to say, that hurts my feelings. 
I feel this way when you do that so that that person understands the impact they have on you. It's very difficult uh, in those situations to have empathy, but that's the other one that we used to try to teach our children is that when somebody's doing something, a lot of times it comes from misdirected or misunderstood feelings that then turn into some kind of reaction situation. So a person may be yelling and they may be screaming at you and you're in a coffee shop because they've had the world's worst day. Everything's gone wrong for them. It's it, 30 things have happened to them. They walked into that coffee shop, you bumped into them and spilled their drink and they took everything out on you. And it's really tough in that moment. But a lot of times if we can model for other people, these behaviors, they can calm down. The last thing I want to do is get in that person's face because that's going to raise his emotions. So just as when I was coaching my kids, if I was emotional, they were. So when that thing is happening, can I step back? And it's really difficult. Trust me, I, I know it's difficult because I've been, can I step back and say, oh, I'm so sorry. It appears you're having a rough day. It appears you're very angry with me. you know. And, and from there, there's a chance for them to stop and go, oh, I am angry. And it may not have anything to do with this person. Like the last thing we want to do is, is meet negative emotions with negative emotions, which we're seeing a lot right now these days in our society. The stress levels are running very high. The best thing we can do, and it's really difficult, is for some of us to start to be the models of, let's take a step back. Let's acknowledge somebody's having a bad day. I have no idea what they're going through, but I can have some empathy that Whatever it is, it caused it to boil over in this minute. It's unfortunate. I'm the receiver of this. Can I diffuse the situation? And then, of course, we always tell our kids, there's nothing wrong with you standing up for yourselves. There is nothing wrong with you standing up for yourself when somebody is is hurtful towards you and walking away from the situation. Absolutely. In your TEDx talk, uh, you were mentioning that your wife suggested you something like saying it's not about the game. It, they need more than what the game is all about. So how do you actually like help your students when you are coaching through, if it is not the actual game, how do you change their psychology? Let's just say I'm I'm at a place like whatever might be happening in my home and I'm like at a very low self-esteem or like yeah, at my lowest moments. How do you actually like yeah, get through me for me to actually perform holistically in a better place? Sure. So the first thing from a coaching perspective, I, I learned about midway through my career was that there was so much more beyond the game and that I was potentially never going to produce a professional athlete or win the major championship with the teams I coached. So if that's the case, then why am I here and why is youth sports existing? It, it has to be for something more. So I always looked at my athletes and said, what can I do for you to help you be an amazing human being beyond the game? What, how can I pour into you and, and, and draw out of you what you need to create the skills and the life skills and the, the values and the mentorship and all the other pieces of the puzzle to make you whole so that you can go on and be excellent when the game ends so that you go on to be a great human being that's what sports should be um, for those athletes that are struggling i realized actually i realized it when i was teaching kindergarten too i might be the only smiling adult in that child's life that day i might be the only person who actually looks that child in the eye and acknowledges them i might be the only person who actually pauses and takes a second to hear what they have to tell me Coach Reed, Coach Reed, Coach Reed, Coach Reed, tugging at the, you know, the shirt. And you're like, what? You know, instead, I might be the one person instead of going, what? You're driving me nuts going, yes. What can I do, Johnny? What, what do you want to tell me? What do you want to share with me? Like the last thing I wanted to be was a child's last coach or teacher. The one that drove them away from the sport or the one, the one person that disappointed them the final time. So that's one of the ways that I always approached my athletes is give them that moment. The other one is I was always 
very vulnerable with my athletes. If I was having a bad day, I'd tell them. It happened accidentally early in my career, but I was having a really rough day. And I showed up at practice and I remember sitting in the car before I got out of the car and I'm thinking, I can't do this. I cannot go out. They were seven and eight year old girls. And I'm like, I cannot go out and coach this group. I am not in the right headspace. I am a mess. I am struggling and they're going to see this on me. And I don't, I, I, I don't want the negativity and the toxicity. And so I walked up to the fields and they, I knew they could see it on me. And I just said, ladies, I'm, I'm sorry. Coach is having a really rough day. It is just, it has been a really bad day. So please forgive me if I don't see myself tonight. And one of them reaches out and pats me on the shoulder and says, it's okay, coach. Everybody has bad days. It's okay. Like that was when I realized this is the best thing we can do is model to our athletes, model to the people we lead, what we would, how we manage our emotions and how we share how we feel, because then they feed off that and they learn from that and they learn to be whole through us modeling that behavior. And the other final piece was I always approached it from a, you can demand excellence from a person without demeaning them. Like you catch more flies with honey sort of mentality that I can, I can demand and hold my athletes and the people I work with accountable, no matter what age they are. And I can support them in that journey and I can make them tough, quote unquote, but I can do it in a kind and loving way so that they know I care about them. I can build trust with them. They know I respect them and they know that everything I do is out of the goodness of my heart for them. And then you do that. And again, you could be one of 30 adults in their lives that doing that, but you might be the only one that day who actually gave them that opportunity. And that helps make kids whole. Frederick Douglass said, it's easier to build strong children than it is to repair broken adults. And that's the last thing I ever wanted was a broken adult after, after my coaching. Let's just use the same scenario. Talking with kids is a little bit easier is what I believe than to talk with adult employees around. Let's just say your leader. I don't know how many leaders are really like have the kind of a mindset to help their subordinates asking like, how is their day or like what they are going through. What do you suggest for the leaders how to acknowledge uh, the team that they are maintaining? Not everybody will be in the same mood or anything like that. Yeah, so everybody's different. Everybody's going through different phases. And, and everybody also, each person that you work with might need to be treated in a different way. And so the big one as a leader was recognizing each individual uniquely for who they are and understanding how your rules of engagement happen with them. I I coached kids who were like, coach, you got to yell at me during games. I'm not a yeller, but that's what they wanted. They, they, and they said, it would just be something like if my head's out of it, just saying, hey, hey, Cam, get your head back in the game. And they said, that'll help me. And so that was an understood agreed upon or knowing that certain certain athletes or certain people in your company may not want to be the one that's put on display. So at a meeting, that's not the person I'm going to call on to share something because that's not their thing. So I'm honoring and respecting who they are, where they are. I'm not trying to make people meet me as a leader where I am. I've got to meet the people I lead in their space. And then uh, I used to always use the smile method with my athletes, which was, um, uh, oh, I'm not going to remember the exact words, the acronym, but it was basically everybody got greeted when they first walked up. Uh, I made eye contact with everybody. I told them how excited I was to see them there. I, I gave a high five or a fist bump or something to create that. And I invited them to join. Oh my gosh, it's so good to see you today. I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad you're, you made it to work or whatever it is. Just doing that created a, an, a connection. And leaders think they have to be separate. They think a lot of times we're, we're made to believe that a leader is separate from the rest of the group. 
honestly, a leader that gets in with the team and creates those deep connections with the team, you can still be their leader and their boss, but they know that you care about them and you respect them. You're creating other leaders. And that's, that's gotta be your goal. You should be able to have not show up at work one day and know that everybody on your team is, is an independent thinker and can do what they need to do to get the job done because you've been very good enough at your job that you've trained them to be the very best at their job. You respected them. They trust you and they're willing to work hard because they're intrinsically motivated by wanting to be there and work for somebody like you. In your whole journey, is there anything like your personal story that connects with the work that you are doing you you did mention that your coach words inspired you in a different way and then you started having that thoughts and then you started this but is there an actual like a personal story for you to actually start this kind of a work uh yeah when i was i was about 12 years old i was um i was cut from a soccer team and it was, uh, it was, you know, in our area, it was like, it was the state team. So it was like Olympic development and, all, you know, tons of kids try out and only a few make it. And then you, you train together for a while and you go and you, you to the next level, the regional level. So multiple states and I was cut from the state team and I was the way it all fell. I was a late, I was an older kid in my grade. And for some reason that year I tried out and there were a couple kids that were actually almost a year younger than me in trials and they were smaller than me. Now at that age, I was five, eight. I'm the, I'm the height I am now. I was big for my, my age. And when I got cut, the coach who cut me, instead of having a meaningful conversation with me and providing the feedback I needed to improve, which there's, again, if you're a great leader, you're going to give people the feedback that they need to improve, but you can do it in a way that helps them. The coach just said to me, I cut you because I felt like you were a big brute who didn't know how to play soccer. At 12, 11, 12, 13 years old, I still remember that coach saying that because it devastated me. It like, give me some feedback. Let me understand, like, talk to me like a human being, or at least show some respect for me, but to, you know, cut me, that's fine. But to tell me I'm a big brood who didn't know how to play soccer, because I'm almost a full year older than the other kids. And there was this one kid at trials that every time he got near him, he fell to the ground. And so it looked like I was knocking him down. And I'm like, I'm not touching him. <laughs> to look back on it, like, it still bothers me because it's like, oh my gosh, I think when I started coaching and I did, I, I started just a few years later, I started at 16. I think that always stuck with me because it's still here. It's still a trauma for me, quote unquote, that I just never, I never wanted an athlete to leave my care, not knowing exactly how I felt and not having had some kind of feedback that actually helps them. And I, I knew that I never wanted, I knew that I didn't want to use language like that, that cut somebody in half for no reason. Like, it just never made sense. I sometimes will hear coaches like, what are you thinking? That's so stupid. Or you're an idiot. And I'm like, why? It's a sport. Like, why do you have to speak to them that way? Now I get results. Yeah, so do I. And I've never spoken to my athletes that way. Or I'm sorry, I'm, you know, I'm an old school coach like John Wooden because John Wooden was not like that. You know, so I think that was probably a seminal moment in my career that made me say, there's another way that we can, and I was very young at the time, obviously, but there's another way that we can talk to people and performance situations and still get excellence out of them. And it's not that way. When you talk about feedback, I wanted to share one of my life scenarios here. In recent days, I, I just changed to one of my, I mean, my main job. And uh, the leader in my job always gives me a feedback 
saying that not anybody is not, nobody is happy with me my performance or anything like that and that feedback went on almost every week one-on-one uh, -on -one calls with them uh, there are two uh, leaders like that so continuously hearing them for about like six months that I'm I'm not doing what I was supposed to do. I'm not good at my job and things like that. And then it it brought me to a point where I told them like, I have 22 years of experience in IT field that I'm working in right now. So I I, I stood up to my uh, one of my leaders and I told them like, hey, I've been hearing the same kind of feedback from all these months, not even a single time you told me like what I need to change. Now, neither you actually like told me like, yeah, this is what you are failing at. Uh, this is what the feedback that you are hearing instead you're always coming back to me saying like i'm not doing my job not even a proper scenario for what i'm not doing my job for my 22 years of life i never heard any feedbacks like this continuously that that i'm hearing from past six months so for such kind of scenarios what would you actually suggest a person like me instead of the leader because they are they are doing the same thing again and again Without even though I asked, like, yeah, what is the actual scenario that you are thinking I need to improve? Like, what areas that you think I need to improve? They holistically gave me a scenario, like, you have to improve on everything. Your communication skills, you are that, you are this. That is my whole job description. So you are telling me that I'm unfit for this job? You are the one who interviewed me and hired me for this job. If you think so, I'm not, then where am I going to go? So what would you suggest for a person like me to take that kind of a conversation? Uh, that's, that's a tough one because uh, the first part of me is like, I need to move on from this role because this isn't emotionally good for me. And obviously it's not working out for them. So, you know, why, I mean, I, I'd be the first question is, is why, why have you continued to say this for this long and done nothing about it? Like if it were really that bad, wouldn't you have fixed it? I think the other thing is from your perspective is, is like you were saying, I'd love some, you know, some specific feedback. Tell me something I can work on. Enroll me in a class. I want to improve. I want to get better. Provide me with that opportunity to do it. Because what you're doing is one, great leaders will step into that moment and provide you. You know, uh, my, my favorite kind of leader is we're not there yet but I'm going to work alongside you and give you the tools and resources you need so that you get there. And I'll be here the whole way of the journey. You've got to take the journey, but I won't let, I won't leave your side. I'll, I'll work with you. That's a great leader, right? And that's, that's what we do with our kids. Why aren't we doing it with the adults we work with? But you also understand very quickly where their motivations are, because if you ask, it's not even pushing back, you're requesting, I'd love the training to help me be better at these specific items that you you say that are not working. Can you provide those tools and resources for me? Because I want to perform at my best and I won't, I don't want to affect your performance or the team's performance. If they don't have those answers, then you've put them where you, you've put them on the spot and you've you found out that maybe it's not you, maybe it's something else. If they do have the answers, it may dynamically change the relationship because they see that you're willing to make those changes and they might also have some some empathy for it. Other than that, I just from feedback's gotta be productive and it's gotta be growth based. And it's the same, you know, it's the same in business as it is anywhere else. We need to give people specific meaningful, uh, repeatable, and a, a controllable feedback. Like tell somebody exactly, this is what's not working. 
This is how it could work. If you did this, here's some opportunities to find growth so that you can do that. You know, that's got to be feedback. It's the same thing as like praise and encouragement. You can't just say good job to people. Good job at what? So if somebody's doing a bad job, bad job at what? Tell me what it is that created the negative outcome so I can fix it. Because a lot of times it's not the negative outcome they're upset about. It's the fact that something's missing in the execution. Your book name, The Spartan Mindset. What does that mean? <laughs> so it's really, so the book is named that because I, I, in my, in the process of setting the book up and preparing for it, I need, I wanted, I loved opening every chapter with a story to make the words come to life. I figured it was so much more powerful if you saw the words being used and you were able to draw that story in your mind. And I came across two stories about the Spartans that I thought had to be in the book. So one is the opening story and one is the closing story. And so when we were going to print, we were trying to come up with a great title and I had every word matters and, you know, if neither. And, and we came upon, you know, well, it's about the Spartans. So we should probably call it Spartan something. And then mindset just made sense because that's really what it is, is the structure. So that's where the name came from. But the Spartan mindset for me is this ability and ethos, a way of speaking to yourself and others and a way of, of managing your emotions in within high stress, high performance situations that you can perform at your very best. Now, performing at my very best doesn't mean I'm excellent all the time. It doesn't mean that I'm winning all the time or dominating or conquering or any of that. What it means is in that moment with the tools, resources, and opportunities I had, I did the very best I possibly could at my potential. Tomorrow, I may be better. Tomorrow, I may have different tools. Tomorrow, I may be in a better headspace, but I showed up and competed. So the Spartan mindset has to do with competition, competing at your very best, using the tools and resources you have, um, adaptability. Sometimes you're in cruddy situations and there's no way to bounce back from them because the Spartan mindset is also resilience. Learning to bounce back and realize that falling down is part of the process. If a child can learn to walk and never once throw their arms up and say, I quit, I'm never trying this again, none of us would walk then. But we see people walking every day because at some point in time, they fell and got up and fell and got up and fell and got up. That's how the Spartan mindset is. Everything we do, we fall down. It's just part of the process. It's how you learn. It also means that sometimes you're in a really bad situation and there is no bouncing back from it. You've got to gut it out and get through it. So you adapt and you become better through it. Just earlier today, I was telling somebody to use the, the concept of when you boil potatoes, they soften. Soften. When you boil eggs, they harden. So the water changes the potato materially, and it changes the egg materially. But when you boil coffee, the water changes. So coffee beans are that Spartan mindset resilience that sometimes you're in a bad situation and things just really suck, but you're not going to let it change you. You're going to change the world around you. You're going to continue to show up every day. And, and it's also innovative. Like sometimes they're just situations, adversities, obstacles that we approach in our lives that we just don't need to approach. So we find a way around them. I can't go through it. I can't go over it. I'll dig under it. What was the motivating factor for your book? Like while you're writing the book for you to keep going to complete it and to publish it, what was the motivating factor for it? Voice. Uh, for many years, my wife, as you brought her up earlier, she's always been a, my biggest fan and my biggest accountability partner. And she's always been a cheerleader. And, but she's also been this, this um, encourager. And sometimes her encouragement went beyond just being encouraging to, hey, you need to do this. Like, uh, this is something you must do because she knew when to hold me accountable to something. And one of the things she used to always talk about is get your voice out there. I mean, 
use your voice, share it with the world. And so between her, I'm writing the book thinking, I'm finally getting my voice out there. And then it sat on a shelf for five years and it get published because then my mentor, who's in her 80s, said to me, get out of the shadows, like step into the light and show the world who you are. What's the worst that can happen? You write a book, yet the average author, author sells 250 copies. So the worst that can happen is you sell only 250 copies, but at least you put your voice into the world. So that was really the driver for me was the opportunity that 100 years from now, somebody could pick up this book not even know who I am. This book may have had no impact whatsoever for a hundred years and they read a sentence in this and it helps them change their life. What a powerful thought to keep writing just in case I get to that one person. How long did, uh, how, how long did it take for you to complete the book? So this is funny. It was a 30 year process because the book is written on 30 years of coaching, of mentorship from others, of watching and studying others, of learning and reading a two master's degree. So it was 30 years. I wrote it in a month. I was challenged by my son to exercise that writing muscle every day for a month. So I mapped out the book. I took, I probably took a month or two just to map out the chapters. Like I, I, I was very precise. I had, I mapped it out like you would a research paper. And then, but when I went to write, everything was ready for me to write. It was just a matter of sitting down and putting more words behind the, the concepts that I wanted to talk about and the stories I wanted to tell and the science I'd brought to the table. And that process was coming at the end of every day, I would write for what the goal was a thousand words. So I'd put focus on and I'd put music on and I'd, I'd open up my uh, writing software and I'd pick a chapter and I'd run with it. And I'd have my bullet points and my notes there. And I just, I would run brain to fingers to keyboard to page. And you can't just always stop at a thousand words. So most days I ended up writing entire chapters at a time. And so, um, I, I did it. Yeah. It was about 30 days. I wrote 40,000 words and then it took me five years to publish it. So that's, that's the time frame. <laughs> five years to publish it, but you wrote it faster than the publishing. Yes. And that's because after I wrote it, imposter syndrome set in and I thought, Oh man, I can't, I can't publish this. And you know, and I didn't, I couldn't find a publisher to pick it up. I, I um, actually couldn't find any agents who would even give me a sniff, let alone, you know, publishers. I couldn't, uh, I, I didn't have the cash flow really because I knew that even with a publisher, it was going to require some money. So I didn't have the free cash at the time. Life got in the way. I made every excuse I could. And then again, my mentor was like, stop hiding in the shadows and get it published. It's now or never, buddy. She's 80 something and has published 20 some books. And she kept saying, I started in my forties. You're not, you're only 49 at the time I was 48. It's not too late. Start now. So uh, yeah, finally did after five years. <laughs> What technology stack you use to write the book? Uh, Scrivener is the name of the software. It's uh, S-C-R-I-V as in Victor, E-N-E-R. I learned about it from Tim Ferriss, a big fan of Tim's, read all of his books, and he, it was one he suggested he writes. What's nice about it is you can put all of your research in there. So you can dump PDFs and other files and pictures and stuff in there and have them up on the screen alongside your writing space. And then it's got this focus feature where it blacks out the rest of the screen except for what you're writing. And you can map it out chapter by chapter and it, it will compile it for you. So it does all the work once I'm done writing. It just, it made it real easy for me. Having your day job, how do you manage your time with writing and <laughs> everything around? So when I wrote the book, my day job was really writing and speaking and and doing webinars and podcasts, hosting podcasts and being on podcasts. So I was doing a lot more of that at the time. So that was just a natural part of it. Now, and then for a while, um, 
I was, I was in a nonprofit world running a homeless youth nonprofit here in San Diego. I didn't have as much time to write. I was writing a lot of grants and a lot of government documents and a lot of policy and <laughs> doing that, but I wasn't exercising that creative writing muscle. Now uh, I, I run the, I'm the executive director of the Intercollegiate Sailing Association here in the States. And so the, one of the things that that we wanted was to have an expert at the helm, somebody that was seen as an expert in the field. So me doing this lends to the credibility of the organization, but I block out my time. I just, I, I set aside time where it's, it's, it's time for me to write. And typically I get super motivated late at night or early, usually late at night or right at the start of the day, I might be able to knock out something. Uh, but I use the writing as a rest period. So when I've had a day where I've been in Zoom calls and and doing and working with sponsors and or even traveling to regattas, and I'm whipped and it's just one of those days where I'm overwhelmed because I'm an introvert. So when I spend my day around people, and I need that break, writing is my break. It's like working out or taking a walk. I will find a quiet spot, open up my computer, and go into my own world and sort of like uh, my favorite thing is to go to a crowded place like a coffee shop. I love coffee shops for this reason. The more crowded, the better. If I can get a nice little seat in the corner, I love being in the corner and put my headphones in so I can't hear a word. And I'm feeding off of all their energy, but I don't have to be a part of their worlds. I'm writing. And that that's that's usually where I try to find, carve out my time is you know, those breaks. Now that you have seen such a career life and everything, what was one best advice and the worst ideas related to mental health that you have got? The best, I'm sorry, say that again, the, the worst and best. Advice. Oh, uh, let's see. Um, worst advice, I, I growing up in the 80s and being a Gen Xer, <laughs> the worst advice would have been, you know, the whole slap some dirt on it, get back in the game mentality. Like, oh, you're a boy, you're tough, you can take it. Like, you heard, I heard that growing up my entire life. Like, boys don't show emotion, boys don't cry, and tough enough, kid. And, you know, my brother used to always tease me, you know, and, it, you know, because the phrase was, you know, suck it up, you know, and, and that was the worst advice I ever got. And, and, and entire generations were told that. And I was on a call today, actually, with uh, a group of men doing a heroic father call for, um, for a guy here in San Diego named Luke Jensen. And one of the guys on the call said, yeah, we're men. We're told we're not supposed to cry. We're not supposed to be vulnerable. We're not supposed to be on emotions. He's like, and I'm tamping these emotions down, and they're driving me nuts. And it's like, yeah. So the worst advice I ever got was don't have emotion. No, have emotion, learn to acknowledge it, to see it, to name it, to control, to control it, to manage it, to live with that emotion. Don't let it define you. The, the best advice I ever got was probably would have been from mental health perspective, probably my, again, my wife, <laughs> she's the rock star. Uh, there was a period of time where I was taking everything. I, I take everything personal, no matter what, personally, no matter what, but I was at the time taking some things extremely personal. I was really letting things get in my head. And it was online and um, I wrote a blog or something and, you know, I don't know, a couple people were like, oh, this is great. I love it. And one guy's like, this is blah, blah, blah. You know, there was one person in the comment section who decided to troll me and say something nasty. And I spent several days like, I can't believe he said it. I can't. And my wife is finally like, you're going to let one person rule. You're going to let one person of the hundreds and hundreds of people who like what you do or who care about you. She's like, you're going to let one person you don't even know. It's a computer. It's, it's words on a computer. You can't even put a face to it. You're going to let an inanimate object ruin your day when you've got people like me all around you who love you to death. Like seriously. 
And it was it was a wake up call. It's like, oh my goodness, you're right. I got all these people who believe in me and love me, love and love me, and, and and I'm ignoring them and acting like they don't matter. And like some random Joe <laughs> on the other side of the country, sitting, I don't, you know, in a coffee shop, deciding to be a jerk, writes a nasty comment, and I let him ruin my day. My wife is right. <laughs> so true, so true. What is that one advice you give? You can give to everybody if anybody, everybody can follow it. Yes, this is my favorite piece. I I I I came up with it a couple of weeks ago, and I've been using it like crazy because I just I was lifting with my son when the thought occurred to me, and I wrote it on our whiteboard outside of our gym. Um, speak loudly, people will hear you. Speak intelligently or speak knowledgeably, and people will listen to you. But speak lovingly, and they'll follow you. So if we really want to make an impact in the world, we have to start leading with love and we have to speak to people in a way that we'd want to be spoken to. And if you really want to make an impact, you need people who are part of your team, who want to be part of that group and who are influenced by you to go and make it because you can scale your impact. If you have, if you're a leader and you have followers, you can scale that impact. And the only way to do that is to speak with love. And I wish especially living in the States, given what it's been like for the last few years here, that more people stopped for a second and led with love first, because it is the most powerful, positive emotion we have in this world. And we should be loving each other way more than we do. What is that one thing that you valued before and not anymore? Oh, uh, <laughs> it's going to sound strange. Uh, my degrees. And the reason I say that is my children got to the age, two of my children got to the age where it was time to consider going to school and both of them wanted to defer. And the first one, when she deferred, we said, okay, the deal is your graduation gift. It was my wife's idea, of course. <laughs> she said, your graduation gift is a certificate. We will pay for some kind of training that they can't take away. That's renewable. That's lifelong. That is a skill that you can carry with you. Guarantees you'll always have a job. Because my wife and I both were in the service industry growing up, you know, and working in bars and working in restaurants. And, you know, I, I did landscaping. And, any you know, as, as a kid, you're, you're doing all these things. And even in college. And my wife's like, I don't want you to. I want you to have a skill where you can go and actually turn it into a career if you want. So we got our daughter, uh, her insurance license and property and casualty insurance. And she's now making more than me. <laughs> um, she, she's 24 and she's making more money than I definitely made in my twenties and thirties and forties. And, and, um, and just really happy and enjoying her life. Uh, our other son, same thing. He wanted his insurance license, so he's going to get it. And what I'm and my wife who, when we when we met, I had one master's already. I got a second one while we were married, her idea. And that was one of the things is like she did not finish her college degree. Her her college degree is as she jokes, was our daughter. she had she had had our daughter uh, prior to to um you know, graduating college and and so she's like, she there was always this like, I'll never be able to get to a level you're at because you have these multiple degrees, and I don't. And now my wife is, in an industry where she's making more than me. She's actually reached a a career and financial milestone that I'd always set because I, I, I it's not about the money, but you know, it helps when you have a family of five. To, and I had set some milestones and she's reached one of them that I'd set for me and I'm not there yet. And, you know, I'm like, see, I don't think I needed those degrees. I needed a skill set. I needed a trade. I needed life skills. And so I'm not knocking them. I love them. They've, they shaped who I am and they've, they've definitely led to my career. I, I have used them, but 
At the same time, I think that I, again, grew up in a generation where we were told we had to go get a college degree. It was the only route you could take. And I agree with Mike Rowe. That there are plenty of trades out there where you can make a lot of money and live a great life. And it doesn't require that degree. It requires the training, the education. And so that's something that I valued a great deal when I first met my wife. And well, they're not hanging on my wall anymore. So those diplomas <laughs> are just, I still value them, but I don't think my children need them as badly as I thought I needed them. They need other things that allow them to be successful adults and human beings. What is success for you? Uh, every once in a while, I get a phone call or a message or, or you know, a Facebook post from a former player who says, you know, coach, I'm doing this now. I just thought I'd let you know, or I'm getting married and I'd love to have you come to my wedding or, or. I had one the other day, I, I had posted something and one of them said, coach, I always loved playing for you because that's exactly what the environment was like. You always gave me the freedom to fail. And I knew I wouldn't get yelled at when I did it. And I still use that skill to this day. And I have that. And it's like, that's success to me. That player's not, that, that, that young man is not a pro soccer player. He's not a pro athlete at all. He didn't go on into a career in sports, but he used something that he learned on the soccer fields with me that was taught to me by my mentors and he applied it to life. Success has nothing to do with the trophies on the trophy case or the money in the bank account. It has to do with the relationships we create for me and the change that we create in the world. Like to know that I can impact people well beyond their time spent with me and that 20 years later, they still want to reach out and say hi, that's success. And again, that's my wife reminding me, one troll and you know, giving you a bad comment or one person who doesn't like you doesn't define you at all. Think about all the people who do. And I think about my coaches and my mentors, and I'm thankful that they pass their success to me. What is freedom? <laughs> freedom is that ability to understand and know the consequences and the outcomes that are there, to understand and know the, the emotions that may be involved in situations and the ripple effect it'll have on the people around you, but having still having that ability, that space and opportunity to take risks and do what you want to do. So for me, for instance, to define it from a performance perspective, freedom is to be able to step onto that, into that performance space and know that there could be negative consequences and you could lose, and but you still have nobody... There, there are no consequences so bad that you don't take the risk and try. I used to always tell my athletes, you make a mistake, I will not yell at you for the mistake. We will figure out what it is and we will move on. That's freedom. That's freedom. Like a lot of us live in fear every day of making mistakes and being punished for them. Freedom is knowing that there's no punishment. That's how we unfold our wings and learn to fly. Awesome. Awesome. What is fulfillment? Ah. <laughs> uh, it goes back to knowing that just even some small thing that we can do as a person can change somebody else's life for the better. Even if it's just a smile and you're the only person that smiled at that person that day or something, that's fulfillment. Feeling fulfilled means that you, you put back into the world some goodness that you had gotten out of it and you kept that flowing, that river of goodness, that river of you know karmic energy flowing because you know that our our world's made up of energy. I know that. And I know when I carry toxicity and anger, I draw that towards me. And I know that that creates, I, especially my wife says, you walk into a room and I can feel everything that's coming off of you. I know I emanate it. So for me, it's, if I can emanate good and pass it along to the next person and it changes their day, 
I feel fulfilled about that. In the same lines, how do you define your purpose? When do you learn what is your purpose and how do you define it? I was probably, we were still newlyweds. My kids were very, very young. We were living in Florida. I was coaching, but there was a particular city. I talked about it in my TEDx talk. That was when I discovered my purpose. Like I was not there for soccer. It was for so much more. And a lady and, coming back to you talking about her son. Yeah. Please. Yeah. And, and it made me cry in the moment. It makes me cry when I think about it now. I almost teared up on the stage when I was talking about it. Um, that became my purpose and, and has morphed over the years, but it's still that purpose. So now I talk a lot about leaders. I develop leaders who transform lives. Like the goal is, is to create other coaches and leaders who are transforming lives out there. And then it's morphed just a little bit more, but it still has to do with it into this personal excellence piece. Every human being has a right to find, to discover and chase their own excellence. And we have no idea what their excellence is. It may not be on a sporting field. It may not be in a sales role. It may not be, but every person brings to this world a magic. And so my purpose is to give people that space and the resources and opportunity to figure out what that excellence is and then go and chase it. And you can, and the beauty of excellence is you can chase it every day. Every day you can wake up and chase it. And every day you can be a little bit better. And some days you're going to have bad days, but that's okay. Tomorrow and excellence is a very personal individual thing. It has nothing to do with being the best swimmer in the world, it being your very best in that moment. And if that's your excellence, go for it. What is gratitude to you? <laughs> it's so funny. We that was a that was a, a value word at one of the clubs I worked at. And we developed these habits of excellence where when you ask a five-year-old what, what gratitude is, they have no clue. So we had to attach it to these habits that they understood and could say, oh, that's what it is. And so we always tell them you know, gratitude is thanking the people who brought you to the game and the referees. <laughs> so for me, it's it's almost morphed into it's it's this knowing and understanding the people around me who have influenced my life positively and acknowledging that I didn't get to where I am alone. And of course, knowing that they poured into me with love, that's the gratitude. I don't always tell them that, but there are a lot of people out there. And, and if you look at my book, you will see my acknowledgements. I, somebody teased me, it's the world's longest acknowledgements. I'm grateful for a lot of people who poured into me in my lifetime. What is forgiveness? <laughs> forgiveness is for us, not for them. I, I read that. I, I'm like, I, I, I wish I could remember who said it, um, but forgiveness has nothing to do with them. So forgiveness is letting go of that negative, the poison that you're holding in your heart and your head and moving on. Doesn't mean you forget what they did. Doesn't mean that they're okay in your book, but it's letting go of that ball of toxicity that is taking up space in your world and shouldn't be. And that took me a long time to figure out. 2019, I had a rough go. There were some people that... Um, I did not want to forgive for uh, things. And uh, it took a lot of realizing that 2019 was bad on me and was almost lethal. I mean, I was health-wise and emotional health-wise and everything like that. And it was all me. Like forgiveness was going, who cares? I'm moving on from that. Like you do you, I'm letting the poison go now. When you're hurt so much, and as you mentioned, you are not going to forget about the situation. How do you let it go when it is hurting you or like when it has impacted you in a bigger way that everything changed around you, all the dynamics might have changed around you as a person you were changed for such kind of scenarios? How do you let it go? So 
This is a personal question from my end, actually. <laughs> I once, it's funny, I once, uh, it was years, this had to do with, this didn't have to do with 2019, but years and years and years back, I was talking with somebody and there was a situation at a club I was at and I was struggling with some behaviors and some decisions and the person from the club, I kept getting dismissed and, oh, here comes the whiner coach. And, you know, I was not appreciated for the fact that I didn't agree with coaching styles and behaviors and felt like I was bringing science to the table and nobody wanted to listen. And the leader of the club, I, I can remember the, the leader of the club saying, you just, you talk to, you're just, you're constantly, constantly. And I wasn't always complaining. I was trying to provide advice too, but he's like, he's like, and I'm just worried because you, you're, you're constantly reaching out to me about this stuff. And I told him, I said, the day I stopped talking to you is the day you should really worry. And so for me, that's one of the big ones is I don't know. I I'm antisocial in general. Like I, I don't do well. So I, I will, I will, I'm a, I, what do they call it? I'm, I'm a forgive I'm a forget type of person, like out of sight, out of mind. I have best friends. And if I don't see them regularly, I will, for, I won't text them for a couple of weeks or call them because I just, that's, you know, how I am I'm out of sight, out of mind. But there are people who I have just stopped completely talking to. And that's one of the easiest ways for me to, to move on is I don't have to forget what they did to me, but they don't have to be a part of my life. They're not part of my circle. And they're certainly not getting the pleasure of, of my energy and time anymore. The other thing is I became from 2019, I became very logical about like almost business-like about certain situations. Like, okay, I see, I see this. I took it personally because that's how I am. I thought there was real, I, you know, I, I create connection with the people around me. I do things on a personal and a values level. So business isn't just business for me. Business is personal and business is values-based. But if somebody doesn't do it that way and tr tries to get me to bend my values for them and then punishes me for not changing my values, and for me, then I approach it from a very logical position, which which I've done. I'm like, okay, well, that's fine. I will, I will move to a different industry. I will find a different tack because my thought was in one particular situation, I've got the training in the background and everything to create more product. So if you want to steal my content or my product, fine, I'll go create more. But when you run out of what you've taken from me, good luck finding more, you know? And the other one is I went and got a lawyer and protected myself from an IP perspective because I was like, okay, I forgive what happened, but I don't forget. So let me be logical about this. And so that's, that's be my advice to people is again, I can care. You can carry the toxicity with you for the rest of your life or, you can say, I'm done dealing with the toxicity, but I haven't forgotten what you've done. And so now it's just, I'm going to put all the logical safeguards in place and remove emotion from that situation and not give you the time and energy. In other words, there's no reason you should be taking up rent in my head or taking up space in my head rent-free or whatever the saying is. <laughs> what is that one thing that I will learn when I read your book? <laughs> I'm a storyteller. I love telling stories. That's what you'll <laughs> Uh, you will learn uh, the impact of words on the brain and how there are a lot of brain processes and body uh, kinesthetics that happen just from speaking certain words. And so you will learn what words help you perform better and how to use them in a better way. And you'll learn what words aren't good for you. So you'll really understand how, how much impact language has on actual physical performance from a brain perspective. Is that to use it on someone else or like, is, would that be helping personally as well? Both, 
That's the best part about it is uh, the most important dialogue we have is the one inside our heads. And so as you read the book, what I've noticed, and I've had a friend reach out to me and he goes, man, I got really mindful about what I was saying to my athletes when I was coaching them after reading your book. And he goes, and then I went, I'm starting to really think about what I say to myself. Like, you, will, <laughs> you will pick up on the fact that your brain cannot distinguish when you say something to yourself, your brain can't distinguish if you said it or somebody else said it. It just makes a note of it and it becomes part of the the flow of of code that you've written on your brain. So you'll you'll learn to speak better to yourself too, hopefully. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. And you can find me on all the socials at Smitha Gunturi and the show notes for any resources mentioned. See you next week. Take care.